The Bible presents us with a grand narrative of God's redemptive work in the world. But for many of us, parts of the Bible can seem confusing, disjointed, or even irrelevant. Today, Tim Keller is teaching on the big story of the Bible, examining how each part fits together to reveal the character of God and His purposes for us. After you listen, we invite you to go online to gospelandlife.com and sign up for our email updates. When you sign up, you'll receive our quarterly newsletter with articles from Dr. Keller as well as other valuable gospel-centered resources. Subscribe today at gospelandlife.com. The scripture this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and the gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, and 10 through 14. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. In the beginning was the Word, And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. He was in the world, and though the world was made through Him, the world did not recognize Him. He came to that which was His own, but His own did not receive Him. Yet, to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the word of the Lord. The Bible is not a compendium of varied stories like Aesop's fables, each with directions and examples on how to live. If that's what it was, if that's all that it was, then basically the Bible would be about you and what you must do. But read rightly, the Bible is a single story. And it's not about you, but it's about him. And not about so much what you must do, but what he has done. He made the world. It was devastated because of our turning away from him. He re-entered the world to rescue us from sin and death, and he's going to remake it. And the story of the Bible, a single storyline, can be discerned, and it moves from creation to the fall and the devastation to the rescue and the redemption to the complete restoration at the end. Now, it's very hard, actually, uh, to not miss the forest for the trees when you're reading the Bible because the Bible's so long and it's so varied and it's so rich and diverse and it's so many genres and and um, and yet it's important to keep in mind the big picture or else you fall into the moralism we've been talking about for the last few weeks 
where basically the Bible is looked upon as a series of stories on how you ought to live instead of a single story about what he's done to rescue you and renew the world through grace. So is it possible in one series of messages and sermons to give the whole big picture of the Bible? I don't really know, but I'm going to try. We're going to try. What we want to do is... Over the next number of weeks, with a small hiatus for uh, uh, Christmas, we're going to look at first the beginning of the Bible, Genesis 1 to 4, first four chapters, that tell us something about how the world began and what happened, how things went wrong. Then we're going to look essentially at the, uh, you might say, the redemptive historical middle of the Bible, which is Romans chapter 1 through 4, which tells us what Jesus did, how he re-entered, and how, what he did about uh, our problems and the the peril of the world. And then finally, we're going to look at the last four chapters of the Bible, the first four, the middle four, as it were, and the last four, Revelation 18 to 21, and see how it's all going to come out. You want to try? Come with me. Let's go. And we start, obviously, at uh, at Genesis 1, and this tells us the beginning of the story of the world. But if you look carefully, and that's what I want to do here, Uh, just this morning. If you look carefully at the first three verses, you actually get a glimpse of what was going on before the beginning, what was there before the beginning of the world's creation. And every one of the things we see there, and there's three of them, how convenient for a sermon, there's three of them, and every one of them is important for us to know about. And the three things we see before the beginning are that there was God, there was love, and there was darkness. There was God, there was love, there was darkness. Okay, first, in the beginning there was God. <laughs> Notice when the, when the world began, God was already there because God, according to the Bible, is the only one or only thing, the only object that has no beginning. And because God alone has no beginning, he's beginningless, therefore everything that there is is grounded in God, finds its origin in God. It's being in God. Now, what does that mean for us? What does that mean practically? You might be surprised when I turn to a a man who I think put it extremely uh, clearly. What are the implications of believing that there was a God who made the world or not? And I'm going to look at John Paul Sartre's uh, landmark essay uh, that he delivered right after World War II, 1946, called Existentialism is a Humanism. Landmark essay. And in it, he looks at the example of a pen knife, or a paper knife, he calls it, a knife by which you cut paper. And with this, he tries to show the enormous difference between believing there was a God, or there there was a God that made us, and not believing that there's any God that made us. And he he goes about it like this. In the lecture, he says, if one considers an article of manufacture as, for example, a paper knife, one sees that it has been made by a designer to serve a definite purpose. No one would produce a paper knife without knowing what it was for. Now, if God created man, each human being is then the realization of a certain divine conception and purpose. Here, then, is the problem. The atheism of the 18th century abolished God and yet still insisted that there was such a thing as human nature that there were still some things we must do because they're good for human beings to do. Atheistic existentialism, of which I am a representative, that is, him, he is a representative. (laughs) It's a long quote. I just want you to remember who's saying this. 
Atheistic existentialism, of which I am a representative, says Jean-Paul Sartre, declares with greater consistency that if God does not exist, we have to face the consequences of this. We are not made for a purpose like a paper knife, and therefore there is no a priori good. Nowhere is it written that human beings must be honest, that we must not lie, because we are now on a plane where there are only human beings and no God. As Dostoevsky wrote, if there is no God, everything is permitted. Now, what is he saying? I think he's making it clear as can be. First of all, he says, if there is a God and we were made, then we're like a paper knife. A paper knife can be said to be good or bad only because it was made for a purpose. It'd be silly. Uh, if you say, is that a good paper knife or a bad paper knife, who knows, unless you know what it's for. And if it was made for cutting paper, then it's good if it cuts paper and it's bad if it doesn't. Not only that, but it is good for a paper knife to cut paper and not to try to carve marble. If you try to carve, carve marble with a paper knife, you're going against its purpose, and therefore you will either ruin the paper knife and or maybe even ruin the marble. And so if the paper knife was made for a purpose, there are, it's, it's good or bad, and there are good things for it to do or bad things for it to do. But he says, and if human beings were made by God, then there is such a thing as things that all human beings must do, which is good, or all things human beings must do because they're bad. But if God did not make us, if we're not here for a purpose, there is absolutely no way, he says, of talking about right and wrong and good and bad. The good news, says Sartre, is that you're absolutely free. <laughs> you, can, you can live any way you want. The bad news is, and he says you have to face it with bravery, and it does take a lot of bravery, but it takes a little bit more than that, is you have to admit that you cannot talk anymore about this is just and this is right and this is wrong in a way that everybody has to do it. You may feel that something is right. You may feel genocide is wrong. But why? How in the world are you going to say to everybody, we should all feel the way I feel? There is no way. Now, by the way, Sartre drove the Marxists nuts for two reasons, because he would very often ally with them and then he would pull back from them. And the reason is, on the one hand, he had a lot of sympathies politically with them, but on the other hand, he was trying to be true to his philosophy, and you can't say some things are right and some things are wrong. And yet what drove everybody nuts was that Sartre, in spite of this brilliantly clear statement, spent all the rest of his life making strong moral judgments all over the place about how people should treat him or not treat him and how people should act, etc. And Philippa Foote, a very brilliant uh, atheist uh, British uh, professor of philosophy many years, though she, was, she taught at uh, University of California for many years, has a great article in which she says, Nietzsche and Sartre made ironclad case that if you don't believe in God, as most philosophers, she said don't, which is maybe an exaggeration, but she says, as most philosophers don't, everybody agreed, they made an ironclad case that if there is no God, there is no truth of the capital T. There is no way that you can say some things are good or some things are bad for human beings to do. None. And yet, he says, we've spent, after we applauded them and said, you're right, we've spent all the rest of our lives making strong moral judgments all over the place. It's not enough just to be brave and say, if there is no God, then all things are permitted. You've got to be consistent, and nobody is. Why? Because in the beginning, God. <laughs> there was a God. And we, Romans 1 says we know that down deep. And even if you deny it up here, you can't deny it in the way in which you live. 
And Sartre is wrong about the freedom, I think. Because, yeah, to say you can live any old way you want, that's a way of thinking about freedom. I got a better way, and the Bible has a better way. When you look at a hawk soaring, you know, riding the thermals, I tell you, that's one of the few times I get jealous of of an animal. When you see what they can do. But, you know, they're not very good. You know, on the ground, if somebody's chasing them, they probably shouldn't run. They'll die. They'll be eaten. They shouldn't, as far as I know, hawks aren't very good at diving for fish in the water, uh, burrowing in the ground. No, no, no. They're built for the thermals. And when you see one, in a sense, submitting to its design and riding the thermals, there's freedom. Isn't it freedom? What a picture of freedom. They're not free by ignoring their design or their purpose, which Sartre would consider freedom. They become free by, by, by submitting to it. In fact, they're only actually enslaved. They're only uh, you know, eaten if they don't submit to their design, if they try to uh, avoid their design. And instead of flying, they try to run. And Isaac Denison in, her, uh, in Out of Africa has this fascinating statement about uh, what that means then for us as human beings. She says, pride, proper pride, you might say, is faith in the idea God had when he made you. Pride, proper pride, is faith in the idea God had when he made you. A properly proud man is conscious that God made him and conscious of that idea and does not strive toward happiness or toward comfort, listen carefully, because happiness or comfort may be irrelevant to God's idea of you. Success is the idea of God successfully carried through, and a proud man is in love with that destiny. Many people are not aware of any idea God had in the making of them, or maybe they think it was lost, or maybe they think, no, who will ever find it again? Such people have got to accept as success what others warrant it to be, and to take their happiness and even their own identities and selves at the quotation of the day, they tremble with reason before their fate. What a quote. You know, I, sometimes I envy hawks, sometimes I envy writers. You know what she's saying? She says, what if you don't think there was any idea that God had when he made you? No idea that you have to realize and find. Then you are not free, but you are going to be completely affected by what everybody else says you should be, or what is important, or what's cool, or what's hip, or what's smart, or what's important. You have to take your very identity at the quotation of the day. Tremble with reason before such a fate. Do you want to be free? (laughs) Do you really want freedom? Then find what God made you for and realize it. And you say, well, how does that happen? Well, two ways, and we got to move on to the second point because this is another whole sermon, but Two ways. One is you read the scripture, which tells you what God made human beings in general for, and you obey it. That's not all there is to it, but it's because there's a lot in there. <laughs> That's the first step. See? That's one way to become the hawk that rides the thermals. But secondly, then you also know that there are certain callings on you. God's given you certain gifts, certain things he wants you to do. And that's not the sort of thing you find just by reading the Bible. You've got to get to know him personally. You have to have a great prayer life, and you have to be in deep community where you have a lot of other people who know what you're good at and can see you better than you are. And together, God shows you even more distinctly and specifically the idea he had when he made you. Because in the beginning, God, 
number one. Number two, the second thing we learned before the beginning there was God, but also before the beginning there was love. What do you, how, where do you see that? Well, look, verse one, in the beginning there was God. Then move on. Verse two, also in the beginning or before the beginning, there was the Spirit of God hovering. And by the way, it's a word that means it's a word that means a mother bird fluttering over her young. Very interesting. It's a very intimate and warm uh, image. And then the third thing you have, you have God, and you have the Spirit of God, and God and the Spirit of God are creating through the Word. And God said, let there be light. God never makes light. He says, let there be light, and there was light. He says this, he says that. All creation happens through the Word. So you have God and the Word of God and the Spirit of God doing the creation. And that's the raw material. Those are the hints that the New Testament picks up and reveals to us in John chapter 1 that the God who was there before the creation of the world and who created the world is a triune God. That within the one Godhead, there are three persons, Father, Son, the Word of God, and the Holy Spirit. The Father, Jesus, the Word of God, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they, together, were creating the world. Looking for a new way to deepen your faith and understanding of Christianity this summer? If you are, we'd like you to consider the New City Catechism devotional. Based on the historic catechisms of the Christian Church, this devotional offers 52 weeks of thought-provoking questions and answers that explore the foundational beliefs of the faith. Each week includes a scripture passage, a prayer, and a brief meditation that will challenge and inspire you. Commentaries are written by contemporary pastors such as John Piper, Timothy Keller, and Kevin DeYoung, as well as historical figures such as Augustine, John Calvin, and Martin Luther. The New City Catechism devotional is our thank you for your gift to help Gospel and Life share the hope of Christ's love with people all over the world. So request your copy today at gospelandlife.com give. That's gospelandlife.com give. Now here's Tim Keller with the remainder of today's teaching. That's what was there before the world. Now, what does that mean? What are the implications of that? Aha, two things. Two enormous implications and the most practical implications possible if you're living in a place like New York City. Number one, first of all, what does this mean? It means the primacy of relationships. Would you think with me for a second? Uh, Most people, most religions believe that there's a God, but they think of God in a unipersonal way. Most religions, most unipersonal way. And we all know that love is something that can only happen between persons. And therefore, God could not have had any love, such a God could have no love, until a universe of beings or persons was created with whom he could have love. And what that means then is, here is this God, a unipersonal God, imagine this unipersonal God, creating the world in power, and then comes love. So first love, first power, then love. Power is more fundamental than love. Love comes in later. Love is something peripheral. Love is something that comes out later. At the root of the universe, then, is power. At the essence of God is power. And love is secondary or tertiary or, you know, kind of peripheral. The essence of ultimate reality, then, is power. But what if what Jesus tells us in John chapter 17 is true? That from all eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, from before the foundation of the world, Jesus says, were glorifying each other. 
To glorify each other means to praise, to honor, to love. And Jesus says, before the beginning, beginninglessly, there was love inside God. God was love. Now you know what God was love means. God was literally love, not just loving. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit were knowing each other and loving each other and delighting each other from all eternity. And out of that comes the power for creation. Love before power. Love before creation. It all comes, creation, the universe, comes out of love and relationships. That's the ultimate reality, not power. Now, what does that mean practically? I said this is the first thing, the primacy of relationships. We live in a society, and in particular, we live in a city with a, with a certain set of cultural values, and there's a hierarchy of them. And here's what the New York City culture tells you. Relationships are nice. Nobody comes here for relationships. It's incredibly hard to maintain relationships. New York City, the jobs are structured, so what's really important is Achievement, money, career advancement, and power. And it's structured in such a way, not only jobs, but careers are structured in such a way in our culture, increasingly, that it's almost impossible to maintain friendships and still be doing well. And actually, almost impossible to maintain a marriage and a family and still be doing well. Now, if there is no God, then the reason you and I are here is through violence and power. Strong eating the weak, that's it, that's all. Power is the ultimate reality. And therefore, the New York City culture is perfectly fine because it's right in line with what real ultimate reality really is. But if the Bible's right, and it is, and the triune God created the universe, then for you to continually make choices, life choices, that put personal advancement over community, loving relationships marriage, family, things like that, for you to always be putting career and advancement ahead of relationships, you are going to be, you're going to be eventually dashed on the rocks of ultimate reality. You were not built for that kind of life. The world was not built that way. Ultimate reality is the primacy of relationships, not achievement, not advancement, not personal pleasure. That's the first implication. It's a huge implication. If this is right, then New York City culture is way out of whack, number one. Number two, it's not just talking about the primacy of relationships. This is teaching us about the nature of those relationships. When Jesus Christ says the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were glorifying each other, now the word glorify doesn't just mean to love. It's a kind of love. To glorify means to honor, to bow before. It's an amazing word, actually. And what it's actually saying is that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit were other-oriented. Each of them was holding the other two at the center of their being. Each of them, as it were, circled the others and loved and honored. And therefore, as uh, my friend Don Carson says, uh, studying John 17, there is an other-orientation in the very being of God, that at the very heart of God, this is, this is really something, if God is triune, then we can see the very essence of reality is to put the needs of the other ahead of your own, is to defer, is to serve, is in a way to abdicate. And that means selfishness is absolutely at loggerheads with ultimate reality. Self-giving, mutual self-giving is what we're all made for. Mutual self-giving. 
in which each person around is doing everything to say, no, 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 not my needs, yours. And if everybody's doing that, you actually have a kind of paradise. And if that's the essence of the Trinity, and that's the essence of the kind of relationships we ought to be in, what does that mean? C.S. Lewis has this masterful spot in his book, Mere Christianity, where he talks about this. He says, in self-giving, we touch a rhythm, not only of material creation, but of all being. For the eternal word, Jesus Christ, gives himself in sacrifice. But when he was crucified, he only did in the wild weather of his outlying provinces that which he had been doing at home in glory and gladness from before the foundation of the world. For the Son glorifies the Father, and the Father glorifies the Son. You see, the self-giving is what is ultimate reality. And so Lewis goes on and says, So, from the highest to the lowest, self exists to be abdicated off the throne. Listen. From the highest to the lowest, self exists to be abdicated. And by that abdication, it becomes more truly self, to be thereupon yet the more abdicated, and so on forever. This is not a law which we can escape. The only thing outside the system of self-giving is hell, hell's fierce imprisonment of self-absorption. No, self-giving is absolute reality. Now, the reason I've still got a marriage that is a joy after these years is because my wife and I discovered that self is made to be abdicated. The reason this church is still here is because untold numbers of leaders and members have come to realize self is meant to be abdicated. That's ultimate reality, to defer, to serve, to forgive, to give. And you say, oh, does that mean I'm supposed to let other people walk all over me? No, because that would, see, you're doing your self-giving. Self-giving is in service, right? And the worst thing you could possibly do to somebody is let them sin against you. But you draw a line and you say, you can't do this for their sake, not for your sake. If you're drawing lines for your sake, You are going to dash yourself on the rocks of reality because all your boundaries are selfishness. And everything about the way in which you're living your life is selfishness. You're going to destroy yourself. You're going to destroy the people around you because this is ultimate reality. The primacy of relationships and mutual self-giving relationships, self, from the highest to the lowest, self exists to be abdicated. Do you understand that? Because that's what was before the beginning. Now, Before the beginning, there was God. Secondly, before the beginning, there was love. But now thirdly, before the beginning, we need to at least notice this, that there was darkness. Darkness. Yeah, look. It says, and now the earth was formless and empty. So shapeless chaos, right? And darkness was over the surface or the face of the deep. I like the old King James, darkness was upon the face of the deep. Okay, what does that mean? When God begins to speak, Under his word, the darkness and the chaos dispels, and there's orderliness and there's light, right? There was a primordial chaos and darkness. When God speaks, when things that come under his word, there is orderliness and light. So what? Here's what. If you go back into Exodus chapter 5 to 10, there's a very famous account of Moses coming to Pharaoh to try to get the children of Israel out of bondage and slavery in Egypt. So he goes to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. And Pharaoh won't do it. So what does he do? Well, God begins to smite Egypt with plagues. You know, for a long time, I used to wonder why in the world Pharaoh was so stubborn. Couldn't he see that this was God's hand? But if you actually look carefully, you begin to realize why he might have been in some doubt. 
because all the plagues are incredibly natural. You know, the first plague, God smote the Nile in such a way that everything in it died. Well, what happens as a result of that? Well, the frogs are driven out in everybody's houses, so there's an infestation of frogs, and then they all die. But when the frogs die, all the carcasses are around, next thing you know, have an infestation of gnats and flies. And as a result of that, suddenly there's an epidemic, and the cows and the cattle die, and then the people begin to die. It's pretty natural, isn't it? See, every time Moses would come back and say, okay, God's going to do another plague, and that plague, and then that plague, and that plague, and Pharaoh said, he sat there saying, well, maybe this is God, but maybe this is just a bad stream of luck, because all the plagues were so natural. It was nature seemed to be falling apart, and sometimes it does. They were natural disasters. Well, you say, well, why didn't Moses just make it you know, unmistakable. Why didn't he just do an, why did, you know, he had the omnipotent God behind him. Why didn't he do an unmistakably supernatural thing? Why didn't he walk in and say, okay, Pharaoh, I see what you're thinking. All these natural disasters, you're just thinking maybe this is natural. I'm going to blow the roof off your palace. Look at that. And then Pharaoh would have said, oh, no, you're right. I well, why doesn't he do that? You know, why didn't Moses do it that way? Why didn't God do it that way? Commentators now realize that what God was showing us as well as Pharaoh is that sin unleashes the forces of chaos and darkness because sin violates the very fabric of your being and unravels God's creation. What you actually have, if you read through carefully the plagues of Exodus 5 to 10, is the unraveling of Genesis 1 and 2. Because like the second last plague, near the very end, suddenly there's darkness over the face of the whole land. It's almost like God is just unraveling creation, showing that their sin is destroying the creation, destroying the very fabric that he had made. See, if a doctor says to you, do not eat high cholesterol, and you do, he doesn't have to fine you or put you in prison. He doesn't have to do that. You're violating your own being. The consequences are natural, which means that you are unleashing the forces of chaos and darkness in your own life. You're violating your, the, the, you know, the design of your own physical being, and you're going to have a heart attack. Okay? And when God says, have no other gods before me, put me in the center of your life, he doesn't have to find you or strike you with lightning if you don't do it. What if you put fame and fortune in the center of your life? You're, you're, eventually your body will break down because of overwork. Your family will break down because you've neglected them. Maybe you'll have a legal breakdown because you'll lie in order to, you know, to, to save your reputation. You are unleashing the forces of chaos and of darkness in your life when you fail to be under the word. Because when God brings something under the word, the chaos becomes orderly. The darkness becomes light. And it's our sin and it's our wrongdoing and it's our refusal to, to obey God as a human race and as individuals that have unleashed all kinds of chaotic forces and darkness in our lives. Well, that's pretty bad. What can we do? What can be done? How can we start to repair that? How can we be turned back toward him? Wouldn't God be perfectly just to let us just stew in our juices? And the answer is, of course. But he's not only just. Or another way to put it is he's not just just. He's not just just. He's something else. What else? Well, in Matthew 27 we read, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, darkness 
came over all the land. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And at that moment, the earth shook and the rocks split and the tombs broke open and the bodies of people who had died were raised to life. What's going on there? Here's what's going on there. Think about the plagues. The chaotic forces of, of disorderliness and unraveling and darkness and disintegration, they were falling on Jesus. Remember the first, remember Moses' rod? This is the rod of justice coming down on Jesus. Remember the Nile turning to blood? This is Jesus' blood and water flowing mingled down. Remember the death of the firstborn? This is God's firstborn dying. And remember the darkness? This was the uncreated, chaotic darkness that sin deserves falling on Jesus. What is it? Jesus was the creator. Nothing was made without him. Through the word, everything was made. We read this. Well, what is going on? Here's the, what's going on. Jesus Christ is the creator who came here not to smite us, but to be uncreated so that we could be recreated. Jesus is the maker who is willing to be unmade so that we could be remade. Jesus is the judge who came not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment, to take what we deserve so that the Holy Spirit could come into our lives once our sins are forgiven and begin to remake us and to get rid of the darkness and to say, let there be light there and let there be light there and let there be light there. The Word and the Spirit and the Father come into the life of everyone who's born again, see, who get right with Him through believing in Him and recreation begins. Why? Because decreation happened on the cross. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut His glories in when Christ the mighty Maker died for man the creature's sin. There's the self-giving. You see that, and you go and do that in the lives of other people, you'll know freedom, and you'll begin to reweave the fabric of the reality that sin has eaten so much through. There's the freedom Sartre wanted. There's the freedom your heart wanted. That self-giving love will enable you to ride the thermals, because in that way, you'll be like him. Let's pray. Our Father, before the beginning, it's amazing, as profound and as remote and as high and as lofty and as deep and profound as such matters are, they are profoundly practical. They tell us something about our priorities, how we spend our time. They tell us about our, they convict us of our own selfishness and our relationships right now. Uh, we thank you, Lord, that. Uh, Doctrine is always practical. We thank you that your truth is always uh, brought home to us in a gracious way because it always comes through, through the cross. It never just falls upon us and weights us down and makes us feel awful. It, it lifts us up and comforts us and renews us, and we thank you for that. We pray that you'd be with us as we travel through the whole story of the Bible, and we ask that you would help us to see that self exists to be abdicated thereby it becomes more truly self. Help us understand that in the context of the gospel of Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's teaching. We recognize that many of you will want to respond to the news of Tim's passing. If you would like to know more about how to share your condolences or to share a story of how Tim's writing or teaching helped you, or if you just want to know how you can pray, please visit gospelandlife.com slash remembering.
This month's sermons were recorded in 1996 and 2009. The sermons and talks you hear on the Gospel and Life podcast were preached from 1989 to 2017, while Dr. Keller was senior pastor at Redeemer Presbyterian Church.